We're in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to read along with me. This is the word of God, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good morning. Thank you so much for being with us. That passage that we just read together comes from the Bible, which is the best-selling, most published book of all time. And I know that when I say that, I can just see the look on your face of, well, that's an obvious statement. Thanks for that. Um, But here's what's so bizarre. I don't know if you've thought about this lately. The Bible is the most bizarre, intriguing, weird book that I think has ever been produced or published. And you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to feel this way. I think even if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here, thank you for being with us. Uh, My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors, and any question you have is not off limits. But whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not a follower of Jesus, this book is bizarre because just think about its origins and how it came to be about. It was written by around 40 different human authors. It's written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and then some parts are in Aramaic. It was written on two to maybe three continents, and then it took about a little over a thousand years to have this book put together. And to say it's a book is a little bit misleading because it's not just a book. It's, it's a series of books. It's a library of books. And, and even though it has a human author, it also has a divine author. And it talks about all sorts of things. It talks about God and sin and the problem of evil and pain and suffering in our world. It talks about how to do human relationships. And it talks about how to live life on planet earth. It talks about sex and about every form and fashion that you can imagine. It talks about marriage and singleness and work and rest and talks about death and how to prepare for death. And then it talks about life after death. And then it talks about this idea of a new heaven and a new earth and all this. I mean, all this stuff, it's, it's an incredible, intriguing, bizarre, weird, weird book that we just read from. And yet here's the reality behind all of that. The reality is that our relationship to the Bible in the West is pretty messed up. It's pretty weird. Here's what I mean. Some of you, you try to read the Bible. You've tried to read the Bible in the past and it's been very hard for you. You feel like you've hit a brick wall. And and I just want to say to you, if that's you, don't feel bad about that because it really is a hard book to understand, if I'm being honest. It really is not as easy as people think. It's complicated because it was written in a different cultural context and a different language that has to be translated into our language and in our day. There's a lot about this that's hard to understand. Others of you, you do read the Bible but it's periodically. And you tend to gravitate towards the same set of verses over and over and over. And listen, I love the Psalms as well. Um, I, I love the Psalms as well, but there's other parts of the Bible too. And so for you, like you, you love this book, you value this book, but you don't feel like you have a, a really good working understanding of the whole story, of what it's all about. Others of you, that's not your story. For you, you've read the Bible, you've read a lot of the Bible, and it's left you with questions. It's left you feeling disturbed. It's left you feeling sometimes even angered or confused at what 
is talked about. Maybe even parts of the Old Testament bother you or confuse you, and, and it feels like, man, what is going on? I don't quite understand. So for you, this is a really, really painful book. But either way, if you combine all of those realities together, what I've noticed is that we often have uh, two common approaches to the Bible. Both are unhelpful, but they're very, very common. So here's the first. It's what I call blind but illiterate belief. Blind but illiterate belief. Here's an interesting stat for you. 85%, so the majority of evangelical Christians, believe that the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches right? So that's, you know, 85%. That's, that's a pretty high number. The vast majority of people that consider themselves evangelical Christians look at this and they go, yes, this book is accurate in all that it teaches. And yet, hold that reality in mind with this reality. 53% of those same people believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. There's really nothing unique about Jesus. believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. Uh, May the force be with you is great for Star Wars, but that's not an appropriate thing thing to say about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's a person, right, with a mind and a will and intentions. Uh, And then, this is really startling to me, 71% of evangelicals believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Uh, That's actually an ancient heresy called Arianism that was rejected by the church in the first 300 years of the church. Like, so here's what I'm saying. Like the majority of evangelical Christians, they, they would look at this and they believe what this says, but they don't actually know what it says. Does that make sense? Al Mohler says this. He says, multiple surveys reveal the problem in stark terms. According to 82% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. It's not, by the way. Those identified as born-again Christians did better by 1%. A majority of adults think that the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. Some of the, st- some of the stats are enough to perplex even those aware of the problem. A Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife right? That's just bad history at that point. Uh, Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And a considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. We are in big trouble, I'd say. So blind, but illiterate belief. Oh yeah, yeah, I believe the Bible. You have no idea what it says. This maybe is you. There's a chance. And then the second approach that I think is really common in the West, in Oklahoma, and it's growing in popularity, is what I call the Thomas Jefferson approach to the Bible. The Thomas Jefferson approach works like this. It's not blind but illiterate belief. It's, no, 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 I actually have read this, and there are things in here that bother me. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson went to the bookshelf, pulled down a copy of the King James Version of the Bible, and he literally, with a knife and scissors, he cut out sections of the Bible and pasted them into another version of the, of the Gospels called the life and morals of Jesus Christ. And, and so the idea here was that there are some things in the Bible that bothered him and other things that he could get behind. So he did this DIY type Christianity where he, he grabbed the stuff that he liked and he avoided the stuff that he didn't. That is really, really common in our own culture and our own hearts today. Where we read the Bible, there are things in there that bother us, so we DIY our own faith and choose what we like and what we want to believe and what parts we want to avoid and reject. And, and by the way, no other section of Scripture gets more 
ejected from, more rejected, more cut out, more deleted, more avoided, more neglected than the Old Testament. The Old Testament is usually uh, the, the, the child that gets the most neglect out of the rest of the Bible. Uh, there, there's a really well-known pastor of a very, very, very large megachurch. I won't tell you his name. Last year, he, he said this. He said this. He was preaching about the Old Testament. Here's a direct quote. He said, first century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. So the idea is the Old Testament is, well, it's old, and it's outdated, and now that Jesus is here, we don't even need it. It's totally useless to us, and it's bizarre anyway, so let's just unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. So all of that to say, one of the questions that I want to invite you into to wrestle with me is what was Jesus's understanding and relationship and approach to the Bible? What was his relationship to the Bible? I think that's a helpful question, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not. If you're here, then you're in church, obviously, and you're here for a reason. And my guess is you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity. You're trying to wrap your head and heart around who Jesus is and, and can we trust him and what is this Bible all about? And, and if that's you, I just want to say that today this will be really, really helpful for you because I want to ask and answer two questions related to the way that Jesus reads and understands the Bible that I think are going to provide you with some insight. And, and here's what we've been doing. We've been living inside of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be doing that for about 14 weeks. And you cannot find, in my opinion, a more subversive set of teachings in Scripture. You can't find something that's more shocking, more beautiful, and also more offensive in the teachings of Jesus than the Sermon on the Mount. And if you get a hold of what Jesus is saying today, then you will be able to understand what he's about to lay out for us over the next several weeks. But if you miss what Jesus is trying to teach us today and say to us today, then this whole sermon is not going to make sense. Not only today, but the, the next several weeks are not going to be helpful for you. So in light of all of that, here, here are the two questions. Let's start with number one. What was Jesus's approach to the Bible? What was his approach to the Bible? Well, look at verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the, or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is unique that Jesus says this. We've got to ask the question, why? Why is he right out of the gate wanting to draw attention to the fact that he didn't come to abolish? Well, well here's why. We don't know fully the backstory, but he had already, by this point in his earthly life and ministry, he'd started to build up a reputation as somebody who was completely unhitching himself from the Old Testament. Someone who's completely kind of rejecting and abandoning the law because of the way that he was talking about grace and mercy and, and this good news of the kingdom extending that to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the most sinful people in society. So by this point, people begin to just assume that Jesus came to, you know, disregard the law of God altogether. And Jesus wants to say right out of the gate, I didn't come to abolish the law. Now, when you hear that phrase law, the word law, what comes to mind? Chances are you have this idea of like judges presiding over a courtroom. Or maybe you think of police officers that are enforcing the law. Maybe you think of these old rules and regulations and things that we have to keep, 
right? I don't know what comes to mind, but, but what happened when Jesus uses this word is he's not imagining that. He's not thinking of how we might ant- anticipate him thinking about the law. When Jesus says the law and the prophets, that word law is a literal translation of another word that was used for the Torah, The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, I know. Deuteronomy, right? And and here's what's so fascinating about what was called the law, those first five books or the Pentateuch, is this unveiled the story of God and the story of his people. This was the story of redemption. So yes, it had some laws in it, but it wasn't primarily a book of laws, even though it was called the law. It was really a story of redemption of God redeeming his people out of bondage in Egypt and forming them as the unique people of God. And then the prophets, that's like everything else. So when Jesus says the law and the prophets, here's what you're supposed to hear. You're supposed to hear the Old Testament. This was the Jewish Bible that he's referring to. And here's what's fascinating. Jesus right out of the gate is saying, I did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Jonathan Pennington in his excellent commentary, he says, this is a far cry from the images of dusty old law books, large marble-filled rooms, and powerful judges standing coldly and objectively over us as we sit, fearful in a box awaiting sentencing. That's not what he means by the law. Thus, when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he's talking about the whole gracious story and Mosaic covenant with Israel. So Jesus shows up, first thing in a sermon that he wants to say, I did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Now that word abolish that's used in Greek is katalusai, and what it literally means is to come to a building or a structure and to dismantle or tear it down. It means that you come to a building and to abolish the building, you tear it down, you dismantle it brick by brick. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do that to the Old Testament. When it's used of a document, an ancient document or a text, it's literally talking about this reality that Jesus didn't come to reject it or to annul it or to avoid it or to say, oh yeah, you don't need to worry about that. That doesn't even matter. And, and look at what he goes on to say in verse 18. He says, for truly I say to you, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away. That phrase, heaven and earth, in Greek is, is like what we might say, uh, until hell freezes over. Or until pigs can fly. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, for truly I say to you, until pigs can fly, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is elevating the Old Testament here. He's saying, not an iota. Now, what is that? What's an iota? Well, that word iota in Greek is, is yod, and yod is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. So Jesus is literally saying, not even the smallest letter of the, the, the law, not even the tiniest little letter that you could find is going to be abolished. I, I didn't come to do that. And then he says, not an iota, not a dot. And that, that word dot is, it, it's referring to a serif, you know, a little stroke of the pen to identify a certain type of letter. Just a small, tiny little stroke of the pen. So here's how some people have translated this phrase. Uh, Frederick Bruner, not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T will drop out of the law. Here's another one, William Hendrickson, not the tiniest hook of a letter. And then the King James Version for the win, one jot or one tittle will shall in no wise pass from the law. You don't want to lose your tittles, right? 
I, I feel dirty when I say that. I don't know why. That's in, in the KJV. So here's, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you look at the law, not even a stroke of the pen, not even a dot of the eye, not even a small, tiny little letter of the law, um, I, I came to tear down or abolish or destroy or loosen up. I didn't come to abolish the law. And it won't actually be abolished until hell freezes over. It won't even be abolished until the new heavens or the new earth, right? So this is Jesus's approach to the Old Testament. Now, if that's true, we've got to wrestle with this reality like, okay, he didn't come to abolish the law, but can we agree that something significant started to change when Jesus showed up? It's not like, you know, we're still going about the sacrificial system the same way and we're still going about, you know, the dietary restrictions the same way. And, you know, if you're going to be a pe- uh, someone who belongs to the covenant people of God, well, you better get circumcised because that's how it happened in the Old Testament. I mean, obviously some stuff changed, some stuff shifted. So, so what's that about? Well, why did Jesus come? Look at verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. Jesus doesn't abolish the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Now, this happens in two ways. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in two really key ways. The first is that he fulfills it by bringing the Old Testament into reality, by bringing the law of God into reality. Here's what I mean. This is so interesting. This word fulfill, like I didn't come to uh, abolish it, but to fulfill it. It's used by Matthew at least 10 times in his gospel account alone. And it's always this phrase where Jesus says, um, you know, the, the law or the prophet said this or the scripture said this, so I came to do that, right? Let me just give you two examples. Like here's one in Matthew 8. That evening they brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons and he cast, the, he cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick. Why? Why did he do that? Well, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. So Jesus is reading Isaiah and it's like, here Isaiah says that the Messiah is going to do these things. And he's like, I'm going to go do that. So he goes and he heals people of their diseases to fulfill what Isaiah said he would do. Here's another one in, in Matthew 26. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand. This is the night he got arrested while he's being arrested. He drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? I love this. And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Now here's the point of that. Here's why I say that. Because the whole idea is that the, the whole Old Testament is unveiling for us and telling the story that ultimately is a story about Jesus. And if you don't know this or if you don't read this into the story, then it's not going to make any sense. So like when you read about the temple in the Old Testament, the temple is the presence of God on earth. It's the place where humanity gets to come and meet with God and encounter the presence of God and experience the grace of forgiveness from God. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he's called the better temple. He's called the presence of God. Jesus now says, hey, if you want to meet with God the Father, if you want to know him, if you want to experience his presence, then you come to me as the new temple. 
And then Jesus, he, he, he's the, the sacrificial system, but the, the better sacrificial system. That was all pointing towards him. So in the Old Testament, if you wanted to get right with God, you would slaughter an animal or bring animals to the high priest and, and they would pray for you and then they would pronounce you forgiven. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus is both the better high priest who goes into the place of God that nobody else could go. He enters into the, the place of heaven in, in front of God the Father and he himself is the sacrifice. He is the one that takes our our sin and our shame upon himself. And he dies and he rises again so that we could be forgiven. All these promises in the Old Testament about circumcision and all these other things, Jesus uh, was really just embodying all of those. They were symbols and signposts and shadows all pointing to Jesus. Jesus is now saying, hey, I'm here and I am completely, I didn't come to abolish this. I'm fulfilling this whole story. That's what I'm doing. So that's one way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He does so by bringing it into reality. He is the point of the Old Testament. And yet, here's another thing that he's doing, and this one's really big for what he's about to say. The second way that Jesus fulfills the Bible, fulfills the Old Testament and the law, he does so by revealing its deeper meaning. He reveals its deeper meaning. The word fulfill in Greek means to fill up. And so what Jesus is doing here is really intriguing. If you follow the religious leaders of Jesus' day and you try to get in, your, your, you get in their head and walk in their shoes a little bit, here's what happened to the scribes and to the Pharisees. They had lost the plot line. They had forgotten that this whole story is a story about God and his mercy and his grace. And what they became enamored with was external laws that they would try to conform themselves to. And what happened along the way is they became really, really good at keeping the external sort of law, but the heart of why God said this law in the first place, they completely forgot. They had avoided, they had neglected. So here's an example like uh, murder. Uh, they, they had gotten really good at not killing people and they're feeling good about themselves. So they're like patting themselves on their back, feeling righteous. Jesus shows up on the scene. And what he's about to say next week in Matthew, we're gonna look at this. He's gonna say, you've heard it said, don't murder. But here's what I meant when I said that. I say to you, don't even, don't even have hate in your heart for your brother. Like hate's the thing that leads to murder. That's the thing. So what Jesus is doing is saying, when I said don't murder, I didn't just mean like bare bones, don't murder, and then walk around with hatred in your heart. That's not what I meant. What I meant was don't even have hate in your heart. So Jesus does this six different times over the next several verses in Matthew. He's like, you've heard this said, but I tell you. You've heard this said, but I tell you. Here's what Jesus is doing to the law. It's amazing. Have you ever seen someone like unveil an art project? like a monument or a statue or unveil like, a, like a, an architectural drawing. That's what Jesus is doing to the law. He's standing in front of a group of people that had lost the plot line and he, he's pulling down the veil saying, this is what I meant when I said those things. Jesus gives us the true intention of the law. And here's what he's doing. He's not coming to abolish it. He's actually saying, you thought it was this. I'm telling you it's this. I want you to go higher. I want you to go deeper. I want you to get to the real heart and motive behind why I gave those laws in the first place. So Jesus came to fulfill it, and he does so by literally living inside of it, bringing it to its reality. But he also does so by unveiling it and helping us see the deeper meaning of the law. This is Jesus' approach to the Bible. Now, here's, here's the question for you. What does all of that have to do with me? Like, that's Jesus' approach to the Bible but what does this mean for me? So second question I want you to wrestle with is how should Christians today approach the law of God? How should we approach 
this thing called the law of God. Here's what I love about what Jesus is doing. The first two verses, Matthew 17 and 18, are really talking about Jesus' approach to the law. And he's going to make a turn in verse 18 and 19, uh, or uh, 19 and 20 rather, and talk about our approach to the law. So here we go. Here's what he says in verse 19. He says, Therefore, in light of all of that, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, did you catch his wordplay there? If you interact with the law of God and you make it small, then you're going to be made small in the kingdom. If you interact with the law of God and you make it great by obeying it, by teaching it, by living it, then you're going to be called great in the kingdom of God. Now, most commentaries agree what he's doing here is not trying to give us this weird hierarchy in heaven where it's like, you know, the really, really righteous people get really close to Jesus and those of us who could barely get our pants on in the morning and struggle along in life, you know, we have to be really, really far away. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Most commentaries agree what Jesus is doing here is saying, if you relax the commands, then you're not even getting into the kingdom of heaven at all. Now, this is weighty stuff. Because what Jesus is telling us, and this is where I, I can feel almost some evading and avoiding and some internal wrestling with even the words of Jesus. He, I, I feel it in the room. I feel it in my own soul. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, the way you treat the Bible, specifically my commands, will be the way that I treat you. And if you belittle them, if you reject them, if you avoid them, if you neglect them, then you will be made small in the kingdom. But if you approach these commands and you approach them with sincerity and you approach these commands with a desire to follow in the way of Jesus, then you will be made great in the kingdom of heaven. Now this is really, really hard for some of us to hear. I think because we, many of us who grew up in church and maybe you didn't grow up in church, a lot of us did. If you grew up in church, then we often heard a version of the the reason why God gave the law, but it was a reductionistic version and not the whole. So here's what I mean. Sometimes we've heard this. Well, God gave us the law really to show us how bad we are and to reveal our deep need for a savior and a rescue and for grace. And and, and you can't understand how sinful you are until you see how the law reveals the depths of your sin and your brokenness. And so that's why God gave the law. He just gave it to say, look, you can't even do this. You know, like the Ten Commandments, for example. Hey, don't lie. Oh, we've all done that. Okay, so we can't even do that. Or, all right, don't steal. Chances are we've all done that. Don't commit adultery. Well, you may not have actually done that, but Jesus is about to raise the bar in Matthew 5 and say, even if you have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So here's the point. Even the Ten Commandments, we look at it and we go, man, it sounds basic, but we can't even keep it. And so many of us were told, this is why God gave us the law, just to show you how bad you really are. That's true, but that's only one third of the story. There are other reasons why God gave the law, And people much smarter than me have uh, described this as the three purposes of God's law. Because God did not just give us the law to function as a mirror. That's the first thing. The law functions as a mirror. It helps us look and see ourselves. And I don't know about you, but like when I get up in the morning, it's like, ah, oh, that's what I look like. Okay. You know, and then I, you know, embrace that reality for the rest of my day. But, but the law functions that way too. It's like you, you open it up and, and it shows us something about ourselves I can't live up to this. I'm 
broken. I'm sinful. I, I look at this and here's what it's telling me to do. I, on my best days, I can't do that. It's a mirror, that's true, but it's not just a mirror. The second pers- purpose of the law is also to restrain evil. So think about this. Uh, laws can't change hearts, we know that, but they can restrain evil. And we, we know this on a human perspective. Like the, the speed limit actually is helpful, isn't it? Now, I, I don't know about you, how you drive, what your driving habits are. I like to drive a little bit on the fast side of things rather than the slow side of things. By the way, if you're a slow driver, I don't understand you. I'll never understand you, right? I, I don't know why you feel like that's okay, but whatever. Um, so so the, the, the speed limit's helpful because if we didn't have that, it would be like the German Autobahn on I-35. Like every man for his own self and just drive 130 miles an hour, that's okay. The speed limit actually deters that. That, that still happens, but it's once in a blue moon. People would be driving drunk, driving with an open can of beer. Like the fact that you can't do that helps people not do that. The law of God works the same way. It restrains evil in our world. But here's the third purpose, and this is the one I really want you to see. The third purpose of the law, it's not just a mirror that helps us see our sin. It's not just this restraint against evil. But the third purpose of the law, and this is what Jesus is driving at, it reveals the heart of and the intentions, and the character of God, and how he wants you and I to live in the world. This is God showing us what he loves. This is God showing us what he hates. This is God showing us how to live as humans in the world. If you read the Old Testament, you realize that God's heart is is incredibly wrapped in this with mercy, and justice, and compassion. He's like, hey, if your animal hurts another animal, then here's how I want you to pay for that other animal to get get fixed, or to, to buy another animal. He'll, he'll give weird laws. Like uh, if you have a house, build a fence around the house on the roof. And, and we hear that and go, that's weird. Why would we build a fence around? But in that day, it made sense because people would actually get up on those flat roofs and hang out. And then little kids were falling off and, 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 and dying or getting seriously injured. So God in his mercy is saying, hey, spend a little bit extra money and build a fence around the roof so that kids don't fall off and get hurt. In other words, think about others and, and spend a little bit more, more money, inconvenience yourself to make your house safe. There's these laws and you see his intention and his heart behind what he's trying to do. Like, hey, if you have someone who's in debt, here's how I want you to handle that. And on and on and on these laws go. But here's my point. They reveal what God actually expects. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is it's not just that old law, some of it that I came to, I I, I fulfilled all of it and some of it is now complete in me, but it's also the new commands that I'm giving you. In light of my teaching, I want you to read back through the story and look at all my commands and embrace them. See my heart being revealed. This is what Jesus is doing. And this, by the way, this is what I want you to feel in this moment. This is how we determine if we really are a follower of Jesus or not. Our relation to these commands. In Oklahoma, it's really common to just say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, why? Well, my grandpa was a Methodist or my dad was a Southern Baptist or, you know, my, my grandma was just the most incredible fill in the blank. And so in Oklahoma, it's really common just to say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. But here's what's so crazy about what Jesus is teaching. To be considered a follower of Jesus means you actually have to follow Jesus to state the obvious. Look at what he says in John 14, the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do you know that you're here and you love Jesus? Will you keep his commandments? If you don't keep his commandments, maybe you don't love him. 
it's a possibility to be considered. Here's another thing Jesus says. John 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Here's another one in John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. What Jesus is doing here is saying, hey, do you want to abide in my love? Do you want to abide in my way of life? Do you want to live as a follower of Jesus? Then here's how you do that. If you don't do that, then it shows that you are not actually following Jesus. If you do this weird DIY thing where you get to pick and choose, and you're the master of your own soul, and you get to call the balls and strikes, and you get to say what's good and evil in your own power, then I'm telling you, you may not be someone one who is following Jesus. Because to follow Jesus is to give up to you being master. It's to give up to you being Lord. It's to put yourself underneath him and have him tell you the way of life and then for you to live in that way. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And this is what's so hard about what he's teaching. He's saying, it's not that I'm going to love you if you do these things. I love you. And the way that you know that you love me is you do these things too. Now look at how serious this is. He ends this whole set of teaching with this verse that I think needs to land heavy in your heart. Don't evade this. Don't avoid this. Don't just get mad at me. Wrestle with what he's saying because this has been kicking me all week. Look at what he says in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You just won't. What does that mean? Because when I think of the scribes and Pharisees, I don't know about you, but in my mind, I have these very, very uh, righteous religious people in mind that kept all the rules and did really, really great. But don't forget two things that are happening here. One is the scribes and the Pharisees had totally lost the plot line. And even though outwardly they appeared to be righteous, internally they were not. They were like all sorts of jacked up and they just weren't being honest about it. So like, yeah, they didn't murder, but they were filled with anger. Yes, they didn't love their, yes, they loved their neighbors, but they hated their enemies. Yes, uh, they didn't commit adultery, but they were filled with lust. Yes, they tithed even out of their spice rack. So they were like so obedient to the tiniest commands of Jesus. And yet when they'd see a poor person down the street, they failed to open up their hands in radical generosity. They weren't really generous. Here's the point. The scribes and the Pharisees were not righteous people. They weren't. They were messed up. They were sinful. They were broken. And here's the other thing to remember. Who is in the crowds hearing Jesus teach? It's the tax collectors. It's the prostitutes. It's the ones who are addicted to sinful behavior and couldn't get out of it. It's the ones that culture had written off. It's the nobodies. It's the poor in spirit. And Jesus is coming to them. And he's saying the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they pretend to have righteousness and they don't. But here's what I'm inviting you into. I'm inviting you into a new way of life where you, as you follow me, will slowly start to become righteous like me too. And I love you as you are. All you need is to just be poor in spirit. And if you can come to me poor in spirit, acknowledging your need, acknowledging your phenomenal disconnect from the law of God, I can work with that. And what I will do is I will sweep in. I will give you forgiveness. I'll give you mercy. I'll give you compassion. I'll give you a new identity. And that won't just be theological reality. That'll start to make its way down into your very soul, into your bones, into the way that you live. This is what Jesus is 
teaching. So, hear me clearly. Jesus is not saying, be righteous, and then you'll be invited into the kingdom. What he's saying is, I've invited you into the kingdom, and you're saved by grace. And if that's true of you, you will be righteous, because people in my kingdom will be righteous. And if you're not, then you won't inherit the kingdom. I love this paraphrase from R.T. France of this whole section. Listen to this. It says, Don't suppose that I came to undermine the authority of the Old Testament scriptures, and in particular the law of Moses. I didn't come to set them aside, by, uh, but to bring them into reality, that to which they pointed forward. I tell you truly, the law, down to its smallest details, is as permanent as heaven and earth and will never lose its significance. On the contrary, all that it points forward to will in fact become reality and is now doing so in my ministry. So anyone who treats even the, the most significant, uh, the, the most insignificant of the commands of the law as of no value and teaches other people to belittle them is, unwor- is an unworthy representative of the new regime. While anyone who seeks to take them seriously in word or deed will be a true member of God's kingdom. But don't imagine that simply keeping all of these rules will bring salvation. For I tell you truly, It is only those whose righteousness of life goes far beyond the old policy of literal rule-keeping, which the scribes and the Pharisees represent, who will prove to be God's true people in this era of fulfillment. So in light of that, where do we go from here? Well, let me wrap it up like this. I want to invite you into two different realities. Here's the first. The first is, Jesus really, really loved his Bible, specifically his Old Testament, I want to invite you into loving your Bible, specifically the Old Testament too. It's all good, and it's all beautiful, and you should read all of it. But Jesus was in love with his Bible. And I think one of the reasons why we grapple with some of the things that he taught is we don't fully get the whole story and the whole flow. Frederick Bruner said this, he said, if Jesus lived in a lifelong love affair with the Old Testament, how can anyone disdain the Old Testament and still call oneself Jesus' disciple. There's good stuff in there that reveals the heart of God for you and how to live in the world. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you've heard this said, but I want to really unveil for you what I meant. This is what I want you to do. It's so, so good. So if you don't hear anything else, then maybe one of the things that you can do as a follower of Jesus is just every day open up the Bible. If you don't know where to start, if you've got questions, it feels difficult, you don't know even, you know, how to understand it, then pull out your phone and download this app. It's called Read Scripture. You can get it for any phone out there. Read Scripture app is what I use every day. It's so amazing. It has videos of our whole books of the Bible and themes that help you understand what's going on, and it can give you a daily plan of reading. Check that out. It's well worth your time. But here's the second thing that I want you to say, I want you to see. It's not just leaning in and becoming a student of the Bible. If you did that alone, it would be transformative for your life. But here's the biggest thing that I want to put before you. Where are you abolishing the law of God in your, in your heart? Where are you relaxing or loosening one of these commands that God has given you? Even one of the tiny ones that Jesus gave. Where are you abolishing or relaxing? It's funny, that word abolish uh, and relax, the, the word relax is the same Greek word that's used. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, and I certainly don't want you to do that either. So I just want to invite you into some self-examination. Where are you kind of making deals in your flesh against the commands of God? This is so, so common in our culture. On the progressive side, 
we are being tempted to redefine sexuality, gender, the nature of marriage, and on and on we could go. And it's easy to look at the commands of God around sexuality, gender, marriage, and want to relax or twist. Jesus is saying, even if you do that on the tiniest command, you'll be made small. We're tempted to do this on the conservative side, where we approach the Bible and we wrestle with what it teaches about money and wealth and hating your enemies and responding to violence with violence and loving the poor even when they don't deserve it. We read that and we read that through our political or, or cultural lens and we struggle with the teachings of Jesus. What he's saying is, hey, I don't care who you are, even if you relax the least command, you'll be made small. This is Jesus inviting us into not being God anymore. I'll end with this. Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, then you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Followers of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means that you stop being God and you let him disagree with you and you let the word confront you and you always seek to lose when you and Jesus disagree. That's what it means. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what you're being called into is a life where you are not God, a life where you are in need and Jesus comes to you wanting to pour out mercy and grace.